Welcome to the podcast ministry of Pilgrim Baptist Church. Wherever you're listening from, welcome. We pray that the truth from the Word of God speaks to your heart during today's message. Psalm 16. And there's going to be a few reasons why italicized words are used. And in Psalms chapter number 16, we'll start there. The first reason is, well, we'll see a New Testament verse that is quoted from the Old Testament. And the Old Testament cross-reference or the Old Testament verse has the italicized words. And in Psalms chapter number 16, we see in verse number 8, the Bible says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. When you look at Psalm 16, verse number eight, we see two words. He is, and they are italicized. The reason that they are italicized is because the words he is was not found in the Hebrew where this was translated from. Now hold that thought and go to Acts uh, chapter number two. Acts chapter number two. Acts chapter number two, the Bible says in verse number 25. For David, Acts 2, 25, speaketh concerning him. I foresaw the Lord always before my face. Now watch this, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. So we see this quote here, this cross-reference. Acts can be run back to Psalm 16, and we see he is in the book of Acts. It's not italicized. So Peter's quoting what was italicized in the Old Testament. Now, we know uh, in in Acts 4, it says of Peter, uh, he was unlearned. He he didn't have a seminary degree. He didn't have a college uh, certificate. He didn't have any doctorate of theology. Uh, but he 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 is quoting, and we see italicized words in the old, but no italicized words in the new. What do you do with that? Should they be there or should they not be there? Of course they should be there. Of course they should be there wasn't in the Hebrew text, but when you take the Greek text and and, and you run it, that's one instance where you'll see, okay, the italicized word should be there. In other words, long way of saying, Acts 2 confirms that Psalm 16.8 is correct by just running the cross-reference. Go back to Psalms 94, the book of Psalms, and get uh, this time get Psalms 94. We'll look at another instance and get 1 Corinthians chapter number 3. Psalms 94 and 1 Corinthians chapter number 3. Look at verse number 11 in Psalms 94. The Lord knoweth the thoughts of man that they are vanity. R is italicized. A-R-E. It's, it's a word that was supplied by the translators 
And so what they did is put it in italics. Now go to 1 Corinthians chapter number 3. Look at verse number 20. And again, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise that they are vain. Are is not italicized. It's divinely what happened here. It's a divine quotation by Paul from a verse that had an italicized word. So the italicized words don't need to be removed. We just need to run some cross-references and we'll get some confirmation that they should be there. In the New Testament, it is not italicized. The Old Testament reference, it is italicized. When you see that, all that means is it wasn't in the Hebrew text and they supplied it because the Hebrew language or text didn't have that word. And so in the Greek, and when they do run the cross-reference, you can see that it should indeed be there. Let's do one more. Deuteronomy 8 and Matthew 4. Deuteronomy 8 and Matthew chapter number 4. Deuteronomy chapter number eight, verse number three, the Bible says, and he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, which thou knowest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. So we see in the third verse, one word, the word word in that verse is italicized. It's not found in the Hebrew. If you were to bring that up, Deuteronomy chapter 8, you won't find a Hebrew word for the word word. So the translators supplied the word, word, and they put it in italicized so that you would know that they supplied it. Now go to Matthew chapter number 4. And I think this is a really, really good point here. In the fourth verse, Jesus confirms that the italicized word should be there and is divinely inspired because he says in verse number four of Matthew four, but he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And I don't think anybody wants to correct Jesus. You had a Greek text that had it it's what jesus said and it confirms that deuteronomy 8 3 is correct get second corinthians 8 and exodus 16 second corinthians 8 and exodus chapter number 16 Because the other situation you'll have is that a New Testament verse will quote or cross-reference the Old Testament. But this time, the New Testament verse has the italicized words. Look at 2 Corinthians 8 first. 
and in verse number 15. As it is written, he that had gathered, you see that's italicized, much had nothing over, and that he had gathered little had no lack. So you have had gathered mentioned twice. That phrase is mentioned twice in verse number 15. And it's added in the text by the translators because that phrase was not found in the Greek text. So the translators supplied what we see is not gathered. Now, because the translators supplied them, does that mean we need to remove them? No. Exodus 16. Verse number 18. Exodus 16. Verse number 18. This is where Paul's quoting from. The Bible says, And when they did meet it with an omer, he that gathered much had nothing over, and he that gathered little had no lack they gathered every man according to his eating so we have the reverse that is happening it wasn't in the greek text so it was supplied by the translators but when you run the cross reference it confirms that it should be there because it was in the old testament hebrew text which is why in exodus it is not italicized you with me? You with me? Okay. Uh, get Deuteronomy chapter number 30. And then get the book of Nehemiah. You'll have to go forward a bit from Deuteronomy and you'll pass Second Chronicles. You'll come to Ezra. And right after the book of Ezra, you'll find the book of Jeremiah and we'll stay in the first chapter. Here's an instance where an Old Testament verse quotes an Old Testament verse. And we want to be in Deuteronomy 30. Look at verse number four. You're going to see two italicized words in verse number four. If any of thine be driven out unto the outmost parts of heaven, from thence will Lord thy God gather thee, and from thence will he fetch thee. Now, when you look at that verse in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 30, you see the word any and parts are italicized. They were added by the King James translators because it was not in the Hebrew text. Now, go to your Nehemiah 1. Uh, verse number 9. The Bible says, we're going to learn a couple things from here. But if you turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though they were of you cast out unto the uttermost part of the heaven. See, it's not italicized. Yet will I gather them from thence and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. Now, you learn a couple of things. One is it's not a word for word quote. You notice that very easily by reading both of the passages. The Holy Spirit isn't required, and nor should we require the Holy Spirit to have to have a word-for-word -word quote. And we see that as we compare these two passages. 
It's not a perfect book, but one has italicized, one doesn't have italicized. Doesn't mean we have to change the Bible. We just note that, we take note of that. Look at Deuteronomy chapter number five. Here's a, an interesting one regarding an Old Testament verse, quoting an Old Testament verse to confirm that the italicized words should indeed be there. Uh, and let's get Exodus. We'll get Deuteronomy 5 and Exodus 20. Okay, Deuteronomy chapter number 5. We'll do that first. Look at verse number 10. And keep your finger in Exodus chapter number 20. Deuteronomy 5 verse number 10. And showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Exodus 20 verse number 7. Uh, verse number six, I'm sorry, Exodus 20, verse number six. And showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. And verse number seven, keep reading. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. That's Exodus 20, verses six and number seven. Now, I know we're flipping, but I want you to keep your mind focused on this. Look at Deuteronomy 5, verse number 11, where it says, For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Okay, I read a lot of verses, but here's the question. When you read those verses, what do you see that sticks out to you in the context of this lesson? Look at verse number 11 in Deuteronomy 5. And look at verse number 7. In Exodus chapter number 20. And tell me what word sticks out in the context of our lesson this evening. Whoever has it, call it. Him. Him is italicized where? In the Deuteronomy passage. But it's not italicized in the Exodus passage. Oh no. Look, you just have an Old Testament verse quoting an Old Testament verse to confirm that the italicized word should indeed be there. We could go through a bunch of these, but I think you get the point. Sometimes it's italicized in the Old Testament. It wasn't in the Hebrew text. It's confirmed with the Greek text in the New and vice versa. Other times an Old Testament passage quotes an Old Testament passage. We looked at one. It does not have to be a word for word quote. The Holy Spirit is at liberty to quote loosely. And number two, we see an Old Testament to an Old Testament. One is italicized, one is not. And all it does is confirm that the word should be there. Now, I went through those to say this. People say, well, the italicized words, they were just added by the King James translators and they're not inspired. And so therefore they shouldn't be there. Well, you got one of two choices. You either have to throw out all of the italicized words because you can't throw one set of italicized words out and not another set of italicized words because that would be inconsistent. Or if you choose to do so, now we have to elect a committee of italicized word correctors <laughs> 
and give them the authority to tell us, well, what I well these should, these should be here because of this and that, and, and these should. How are you going to do that? Option one, I don't think is viable. Option two, I don't think is viable. Option three would be real deep, real theological, and real, real hard to implement. Just leave them alone and read the Bible and believe it. <laughs> well, that would take too much faith. I mean, it really comes down to where's your faith in? So I say we should just leave them as they are, note it, and move on with living for God. No translation is word for word. The King James Bible is not a word for word translation from the Texas Receptives. And all of the words that have been added as italicized words can all be confirmed by just running cross references. All translations have italicized words. Every single English translation does. There just seems to be a tweaked bias towards the King James Bible. If I said to you, we're going to train jujitsu. Jujitsu is one word. It's not an English word. If I were to say to you, we are going to now train in the art of gentleness. What I did is I translated the word jujitsu into English. And because there isn't an English word for jujitsu, I had to use three words in English to tell you jujitsu, which is one word in Portuguese or Japanese. Now, isn't that something? I didn't change the Bible. I translated. We're not we talk about the Bible. I didn't. I didn't change what the art is. I just spoke to you in English. In other words, I supplied two additional words to give you the meaning of what it is. If you took a class and you had a, a Brazilian instructor and he said, Pasenda de la Guara. He said four words. Four words to basically tell you Guard pass. Now, you don't have to know what a guard pass is, but you have to know this. Guard pass, two words. Basenda de la Guara, four words. It's called translating. If you took a, uh, if you went to Korea, if you were in Seoul, Korea, Korea you would be lined up in, in the martial art training center, and the instructor would say to you, Chundanabchinaki. Uh, now that's a lot of words to say front kick. <laughs> Two words. But he gave you a bunch of words, chundanapchanaki, in Korean, so that you would be able to understand this is what you got to do. And then he'd tell you to do hadanmaki. Hadanmaki. You know what that means? Block low. 
block low. I mean, someone's going to kick you in the leg. Block low. Hadamaki! Maki is one word. So it's actually three words. Block low. They had to supply one word. Three, two words to three words. You see what's happening? When you go from one language to another. Is that easy to understand? From a guy that didn't do very well in school. Who didn't. Who struggled for four years in Bible school. And who knows a little bit of Portuguese and a little bit of Korean and can uh, is not a very smart guy linguistically linguistically As a matter of fact if I write something you bring it to an English grammar teacher I'm getting red X's all over my paper what I'm trying to communicate is that this stuff isn't hard to figure out if I can figure it out I'm no scholar the Bible's for the common people. So it should be easy to understand. And if you just take some time to talk about these things. The King James Bible translators gave us an honest view. A straightforward view of the Bible. They were honest enough to say, you know what? We're just going to put these words in italics. And we're honest about it. They weren't interested in adding to the word of God. They were interesting in giving the proper sense. They weren't adding their opinion. All translators do this. And you would have to say that there is no Bible anywhere. Because they all have italicized words. And you know what a funny thing is? A lot of Bible scholars will basically put forth that argument. They're not NSA. They're not um, NS, uh, NASB only. They're not NIV only. They're not ESV only. They're everything only. <laughs> they don't believe any translation is the word of God. They believe just the word of God is kind of floating out there and you just kind of gather text and you take what you think is right. And they want to be able to have control over viewing it and studying it and then making corrections if needed. And they'll point to church fathers and church history and they'll point to all these men. Except I think we need to be careful of always pointing to men because this is a spiritual book, not a linguistic book. That should be studied as such. It should be studied as a spiritual book primarily. Second Peter chapter number one. There's a couple things that would get Pilgrim Baptist Church into trouble with other brethren that are... Christians and we're going to go to the same heaven and we're washed in the same blood and we believe the same gospel and this is one of it and these matters need to be talked about they need to be uh, they need to be conversed because it's an important issue it's not the most important issue how much evangelistic efforts have we done over the last three 
We never bring this up to lost people. But the church at large needs to get back to the good old black book. Some have called it the 66 caliber. That'll pack a wallop. Everybody wants revival. Everybody wants a better church. And, you know, all the churches have gone apostate. Everybody wants, you know, what the book. God put some stuff in a book and he said, believe the book and preach the book and teach the book and open the book and don't correct it. I'm telling you, we can trust it. In first, second Peter, um, chapter number one, here's why we can trust it. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of fill in the blank for me. Man. It's not up to the will of man to change, correct, or alter, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by what? The Holy Ghost. It's a spiritual book. Men were used. You can be used by God. I can be moved, used by God. If we're moved by the Holy Ghost. That's why it says sanctify Christ first in your own hearts before you talk to a lost person and just blow the whole thing. Because we should be moved and guided by the Holy Spirit. And that's the idea here. The prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. It's not a human book. It's not a set of linguistic rules that we need to follow or not follow. It's a spiritual, supernatural book. It's not up to men to say, well, I agree or I disagree. We have to get to a point where our faith comes into play. And, you know, I'm tired of people saying, well, they're just human words. I can just relate to that style better. The more updated language, it's more relatable to me. The way that they have expressed the emotions through words. Since when was it up to man to agree or disagree on style and emotions and wording? It shouldn't be. Acts 22. Acts 22, verse number three. I am verily a man. Who's this? Paul. Which I'm a Jew. It's a Jewish man born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia. Yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel. You see, Paul was just taught by a man. You see, it's just words that are scripted down. And you see, those words had to be put down in written form as a man like Gamaliel learned it and then recorded it. And the words had to be formed and put together and then passed down. You see, it's it's just Paul's just a man. He's just a Jew. And he was just brought up at the feet of Gamaliel, who's just a man. 
except the verse doesn't end there. There's a comma after Gamaliel. Watch how he taught. And taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers and was zealous toward God as ye all are this day. That's what we should be today. Zealous toward God. Teaching the perfect manner. That means it's very, very exact. That means he's not taking liberty to say, well, what do you guys think about it? Well, what do you guys think about it? Maybe we should form a committee of think thinker about us. He doesn't do that. He's taking a very precise and a very ex extremely strict manner of study. It's called vigorous and rigorous study. So that nothing was spared to help Paul understand that law. Well, the King James Bible, it's just too hard to read. That's funny. Paul's sitting on the feet of Gamaliel and he's sparing no expense to make sure he gets it. Perfect manner of the law and zealous toward God. We've got a perfect book. I believe that. But I believe our hearts need to be zealous toward the right thing. God. Zealous toward God. You've got a letter and you've got a spirit. The perfect manner of the law and then you've got zealous toward God. You need to have both. So I thought that was interesting. Colossians 3. <clears throat> Thursday night, we looked at um, Joshua and Caleb were basically voted out. And democracy got its way when they were supposed to take Jericho. When they were supposed to take Canaan, they go out, they spy, and they see the lands. And, oh, boy. And they start complaining. The majority, I think we said this Thursday night, the majority is typically wrong. So just because the majority of churches have gotten together and just because the majority of the denominations have annual meetings and they say, you know what, we should embrace this Bible and that Bible and this version and that version. It's probably a good indication that they're wrong because typically the majority is always wrong. You have churches that are run by the will of the people like a democracy. As soon as they don't like the preacher or something that's being taught, they want to make sure they get the membership certificate that grants them voting rights. They're going to have secret meetings and those secret meetings and secret text messages and secret emails are going to go on for two, three, four months. And all of a sudden they're going to call a business meeting and they're going to vote that guy and that Bible out of there. Get rid of him. And that happens all the time. They don't want the book. They're going to find out how to get rid of the guy that's preaching the book. There's a bias toward it. I'm not saying that happens in every church, but I am saying it has happened and it continues to happen. They want this book gone. They want it out of the pulpit. 
And I have good news for all of us. It's staying at the Pilgrim Baptist pulpit. It's not leaving this pulpit. It's always going to be taught and preached from, from this pulpit. And the verses are going to be on the gospel tracks. And the Sunday school teachers are going to teach and preach out of it. And the kids are going to memorize it. And the preacher is going to stand, hold fast for it. And if somebody comes in and they got an ESV, fine. But we're not going to allow someone to come in and start trying to get rid of the book. We want the book. We don't worship the book. We worship God. And he made a promise. And we're going to believe that promise. And if you think we're mean and hateful and bigoted and narrow-minded, well, we're not. We're nice people. Most of the time. Colossians 3, verse 16. Verse 15. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts. You think when those great revivals were sweeping across America, they had King James Bibles. You think they had the peace of God in their hearts? They did. To the which also you are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Now watch this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. So you've got the peace of God ruling in your heart, and you have the word of Christ that should dwell in you richly. And what does it give you? It produces wisdom. You want to be wise? You want to make sure you get the word of Christ. What does it produce? Look at verse 17. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. This book isn't about just vainly repeating John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believes in him shall not perish in every last night. For God so loved the world, for God so loved the world. For God. It's not about a vain repetition. It's not about, it's not about a scholastic exercise. We did that in Romanism. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. And they would go on. And he flipped the next beat. Hail Mary, full of grace. And then you flipped the next beat. You did 10 of those. And then he came to a bigger beat. You put your finger on that beat. You said, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then you get to another set of 10 beads. The blue beads were the smaller beads. And you start over with the Hail Mary. And it was all vain repetition. It's Romanism. This book is not approached like Romanism. Just vainly memorizing like a scholastic exercise. It's not repeat a prayer and get saved like so many. I'm sad to say so many so-called Baptist churches across America are now embracing. Dial a prayer. Repeat a prayer. All of these scholastic exercises get men nowhere. Look in the middle of verse 16. Teaching, you got the word of Christ dwells in you, all wisdom. You know what you can do with that? Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I guess unless I'm leaving, singing. <laughs> it might not admonish. It might. Singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. I have that part. And look, if I had myself a guitar, I can keep up with the tune and, and, and have a good old time. Had some some piano accompaniment. We all our singing would sound better because if our, we didn't sing well, the piano would drown us out. But what's the most important thing? 
Give grace in your heart. Christian, your heart. I got a bone to pick with King James Bible believers that have no grace in their heart. I got a bone to pick with people that say they got the right Bible, but the wrong attitude. They got the wrong heart attitude. What's that? It's not Christian. You're not convincing anybody that we should go by the book when you're mean and nasty to them. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Get some wisdom will be produced. You get some understanding. Go to Psalm 119. Let me ask you this question as you're turning to Psalms 119. Do you get understanding by easier to read and easier to learn in more modern used words? Is that where your understanding comes from? Do we need to submit to that definition of biblical understanding where you can't say the word because nobody knows what it means and so therefore they can't understand. You shouldn't say the word quick or quickeneth because that word is too hard to understand. They won't understand what the Bible is. And after all, shouldn't the Bible be for the common people in a language that they can understand? And so they'll bring a charge against the book and say, see, those words aren't in use. Except if you use them and I use them, they are in use. So they're modern words. But we went through a simple example. If you're not dead, you're, you're quick. You don't even have to use another word. You can just get it from the context. So where does the understanding come from? Is it a requirement that you must have a word that's used modernly? And if not, well, we need to go back and refix it. Is refix a word? Refix it? Probably not. Probably a good time to read a verse. <laughs> Look at Psalm 119. Look at verse 130. Where and who gives the understanding? Psalm 119, verse number 30. The entrance of thy words giveth life, light. It giveth understanding Unto simple. Praise God. Praise God. My understanding comes from God. The light that I have and the light that you have comes from God. It's not about a linguistic, academic exercise that only theologians can partake in and then somehow pass it on to us simple people. I'm telling you, you want light, you're going to get it from the word of God. And it doesn't matter if you don't understand what quickeneth means. God will give you light. You don't have to change quick into alive. Because number one, it doesn't mean alive. It means alive and never die again. Which is what happens to you when the spirit quickeneth us. We're not going to die. We're alive to never die again. Praise God for his salvation. That's why that word quick we see in the Bible. It adds a fuller, a fuller meaning. 
The entrance of thy words giveth light. That's what I want. The entrance of his word. He giveth understanding. That's where the understanding comes from. And it's under the simple. It comes from God. Putting human understanding above God giving light and putting human understanding above God given the understanding is wrong. And it, and it will be harmful. It is a mistake. It's a mistake. God gives the light. Trying to make. Trying to make Bible study and art. Trying to make preaching and art is a mistake. People, men make art. God gives light. God gives understanding. This is not. This is not about making art. Well, the art of scholarship and the art of preaching and the art of how about the God that gives light? How about the God that gives understanding? How about we look to him and forget about our human intellect? It doesn't mean we throw our brains out the window. It means we look up and we allow God to enlighten us and give us understanding. And we get that from his word. If it's hard to understand, if this book is hard to understand, and I get to a section where I can't understand it. I am not running to a scholar to try to get a modern version. I am going to pray. I am going to dig into that verse. And I'm going to ask God to give me light. And I'm going to ask God to give me understanding. And I'm going to trust God that he will. And maybe it's going to be in the form of a brother or a sister that's going to point something out to me. And I praise God for that. That's a huge benefit. I don't want to be led around my whole life trying to find an easier to read Bible. Look, if it's harder to read, but it's right, give me the hard to read Bible. How many of you are going into the next grade this week or this month or next month, depending on when you start your homeschooling? You're going into the next grade. Do you think the English is going to be harder? It's going to be hard. So you're going to have to talk your teacher into giving you something simpler and easier to read. And it ain't going to happen. It ain't going to happen. And see, I, if I was in class with you, I'd get in trouble because I said ain't, ain't, ain't a word. None of you kids are laughing. Romans 7. Romans chapter number 7. We'll do a couple more and then we'll close out. Romans chapter number seven. If you just make this Bible about an intellectual exercise of memorizing or reciting passages, you're missing something. That's not what this book's about. Romans seven, verse six. But now we are delivered from the law. That being dead, wherein we were held. That we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. If you just focus on words, if you just focus on sentences, if you just focus on paragraphs, if you just focus on chapters, if you just focus on books of the Bible, if you just focus on the linguistics only, the scholarship only, you'll get caught up. In a dead letter. 
because it is not a scholastic exercise to just recite and repeat. It's a spiritual book. And without the newness of the spirit, our understanding will only be as a child. Well, that word shouldn't be in the Bible. Well, behold, shouldn't be in the Bible because it's not used in modern day language. And it's really not a word anywhere. Just because you got a hold of some Hebrew lexicographer that convinced you that behold shouldn't be there. That doesn't mean he's right. We need to be careful about scholastic exercises and getting caught in a dead letter. We need to have the spirit that's renewed. The newness of the spirit. First Corinthians 13, last verse. There are many men that have defended the King James Bible and know a lot more about defending it than I do. And they will all tell you, at least the men that I know, and the men that I've learned from, will all tell you this. You're not going to argue anybody into belief in the word of God. You can give them all the manuscript evidence. You can give them all of the errors in the modern versions. You can explain to them italicized words. It'll be a dead letter. So don't argue with a dead letter. They need to have the right spirit. We need to have the right spirit when we speak to them. I want everybody to have the right book. But we're not going to accomplish anything for the kingdom if we're mean and rude and nasty and take a bad attitude as we argue for the right book. There's a spirit that's Christian that we would have if we believe the Bible and allow it to dwell in us richly. If you have the right book, you should have the right spirit. And if you have a nasty spirit and a nasty attitude, and if I'm mean and grumpy, and I say I believe the King James Bible, you see why people would kind of be turned off to you? Because you don't have the right spirit. And every Christian knows that there's a spirit of Christianity that should be evident. 1 Corinthians 13. Verse number 11, when I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. You know how we teach children? Memorize this, recite that. Memorize this, recite that. Why? Because when they get old enough, you want them to know their time statements. When you bring them to church, you don't want your kid to be embarrassed as the only one that doesn't know John 3.16. Okay? That's why we. But no, because when they do get old enough and they can understand, they're going to be able to recall that. But until then, all of this rote memorization, all it is is dead letter stuff. It's got to become real to them. And then they'll have their spirit quicken it, quicken It would be childish to say, 
well, we're just going to read whatever we agree that would be easier to understand. Or we're just going to all collectively agree that we just really won't understand this and it's going to be too much work to try to understand it. So we'll just move on. I am proposing we have to allow God, Psalms 119, to give us light, to give us light and to give us understanding so we can move away from being childish and just rote memorization and vain repetition and have a true spirit behind our Christianity. Last verse. So shall I have wherewith to answer him that reproacheth me. Psalm 119.42 For I trust in thy word. Thank you for listening to the podcast ministry of Pilgrim Baptist Church. We look forward to seeing you in the next episode. In the meantime, you can sign up for our email newsletter at www.pilgrimbaptist.church.